you alive this morning? I pray so. It was a bit cooler this morning earlier, wasn't it? Uh, I think it was 10 degrees. Like I'm talking about 5 o'clock in the morning, if you were up at that time. I was in the first service, and all of a sudden I realized when I started clapping, my hands were cold. Uh, you ever clap cold hands? They sting, don't they? But uh, anyway, you get them warmed up pretty quickly. Hey, good to have you here. Thank you, team. Appreciate you guys. Give them an incredible hand and just say thank you for leading us in worship. Appreciate them. I, I want to continue today, just a Bible character, Old Testament character. We talked about David last week, David, uh, the, uh, the mercy of David. I want to talk about another aspect of David. There's just a Miriam, Miriam of millions of uh, stories you could talk about David. You remember David, the guy who killed Goliath, and, and all those uh, wonderful episodes that happened in his life. Um, I want to turn our attention this morning to uh, chapter, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. And uh, just as a way of a bit of a backstory to his life, and this story we're about to read, verses 1 to 13, um, King Saul is king of Israel, um, and uh, there's another guy called Samuel who was the prophet or the priest of Israel, and God would speak through Samuel, and God said to Samuel, um, Saul has finished his time, I've chosen a new king. Uh, and I want you to go to the sons of uh, a guy called Jesse, because I've chosen a, a king from his sons. Now, Jesse left, lived in Bethlehem, okay? And so uh, that's where Samuel went. He says, okay, God. So let's take up the story. Uh, it's in verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 16, okay? should be there on the screen. The Lord said to Samuel, uh, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Uh, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of the sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you uh, what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Uh, Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw, saw uh, now he's, he's got the sons and Jesse's there and all Jesse's sons. And Samuel saw Eliab and thought, you know what? Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, what must have whispered in his ear, um, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things which people look at. People look at the outward appearance. Would you agree? Um, but the Lord looks at the heart, doesn't he? And then Jesse called Abinadab uh, and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. And Jesse had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Um, and then Jesse, Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. And so he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? I don't know where. You know, Samuel must have been thinking, you know, God, you know, um, we've run out of options here. <laughs> There's seven of them. Uh, we've looked at all of them. Is there anybody else? And so he asked, probably thinking that, you know, maybe Jesse's going to say, no, no more sons. Uh, and, and then, you know, Samuel could have said to God, well, you got it wrong, God. Um, but, and he said, are all the sons here? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. 
And so he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and had handsome features. And then the Lord said, Arise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil. Literally would have been a horn from a cow. And maybe a plug on top. It was filled of oil. And anointed him. They tipped it on his head. It run down over, his, over the top of his head. And, and they anointed him in the presence of his brothers. Notice that. In the presence of his brothers, all his brothers. How would you feel if you weren't chosen, you know? And you're standing on the sideline. How come the eighth brother, the youngest, gets anointed? What was wrong with us? Good question. See if we can answer it. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon who? David. Da and then Samuel went to Ramah. Um, David, while he was, cho you know, he was around 15 years of age. That's fairly young, isn't it? Uh, we haven't got an ex exact age, but around that age, they think. Um, interesting. But this moment wasn't just a pivotal moment for David's life. Um, it was a pivotal moment in Israel's history. Uh, because there's the, there's the passing on the baton, so to speak, from one king to the next. But the truth was, it didn't happen. It, while it happened, spiritually speaking, the anointing of David, it took another 15 years for David to actually climb onto the throne. So there was a process in David's life that was yet to take place in all the next 15 or so years before David actually became king. And, and uh, that's a whole story, a message in itself. But as I, um, as I look at this story and the way David was chosen, I noticed that David wasn't chosen by a committee. There wasn't this, uh, this group of men and women who sat around a table and they were um, specially uh, you know, appointed to be choosers of kings. Uh, you know, there wasn't that case at all. And David himself, uh, when you think about David, he wasn't even of royal blood. He was just from the family of Jesse who lived in Bethlehem. You know, does anything good come out of Bethlehem? <laughs> hmm, well, David. Um, so uh, David, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't under some mentoring program to become a great king. Uh, nothing like that. So how was David chosen? Take note, God chose David. God chose him. God had a plan for him. And, uh, you know, so David was, uh, and it's interesting because the question we have to ask now is, why was God chosen, particularly over all the other sons? Why was he chosen? You, you know, something that's not shown here in Scripture, but it was a part of Jewish culture, is that seven was a wonderful number. It was God's number. And if you had seven sons, you had the perfect family. Or you had seven children, you had the perfect family. But the eighth was always classed as, oh, an afterthought. It was always classed as, a, well, you know, I can imagine when Jesse's wife fell pregnant with eight child. You're, you're pregnant. I had it all planned. I had seven. Seven's God's number. perfect. Jewish culture said, you know, if you had seven, you're doing well. How did you fall pregnant? She would have looked at me and said, you don't know? <laughs> don't worry about that. Anyway, um, so, you know, to be honest, the eight, when you had an eighth child, they're always classed as the one that really wasn't afterthought, really wasn't, really wasn't going to do much with their life. That's a terrible thing, isn't it? But that's the reality of the situation. So we see here, uh, why was David chosen? He was just young, uh, but, uh, but we see God says he's the one. Why was he chosen over others? Have you ever thought about Why was he? I know you might, you know, you probably think, I know the answer to this question. I know why he's chosen. But let's go a little bit, let's think about this this morning. See, verse 1 in this 1 Samuel chapter 16, it says, it, you, we actually see, God says this, I have chosen one of his sons to be king. The word chosen 
if you were to interpret it again from the Greek, from the original Greek interpretation in, in back into another English word, it actually means God sees. Okay, So when Samuel, uh, when God said, I've chosen for myself a king, he was saying, I see myself a king. And the question has to be asked, what did God see? Because he saw all the seven sons. Some of them were tall, handsome, muscular, good looking, um, uh, you know, possibly good soldiers. And yet he didn't choose them. And then he gets this young lad come along and he chooses him. And mind you, it says in Scripture that David had handsome features, glowing kind of um, outward shine to him. But God could have chosen any of the other sons because they were pretty good looking apparently as well. So they mustn't have chosen David because of what he just looked like. There was something else about him. Why did God choose him? Because David was the forgotten one, remember? He wasn't even considered to be part of the family gathering that day. He was left in the field to look after the sheep. He wasn't even considered. He was the eighth son. He was the son that, you know, could have taken or leave it. I don't know how my wife, you know, eighth son. Uh, but he, he was the forgotten one. He was the smallest one. He was the least likely to do anything important. So what did God see in David? Well, as we look at the whole heart of this whole story, if you were to pick out the heart of this story, it'd be these two verses, verses 6 and 7. It says this, When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands before the Lord now. Verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at the, look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at, come on, the Lord looks at, once again, the heart. He looks at the heart, doesn't he? Are you there this morning? He does look at the heart. So they went through the seven sons, and each time you can appreciate, you know, it's like a... Um, you know, each of the sons would walk up, Jesse would send them out, walk up before Samuel, no, 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 seven times. Finally, David comes up, God says, that's the one. And I often asked myself a question in regards to this whole story. Why would God not tell Samuel who the son was right at the start and save a whole lot of time and energy? You know, why not just, Samuel, it's David. Don't worry about it. It's just David. Why didn't, but why did God just send Samuel to the sons of Jesse and said, I've got one amongst, take him through a process. And, I, and I've often thought about this. And, and, you know, the truth is, is because each time God said no, or, or through Samuel, Samuel said, no, that's not the son. Um, it only served to reinforce the reason that why David was the final choice and was the best choice. It only served to, for everybody who was there. All the elders of Bethlehem, Jesse himself, all the other sons, all the family members, everybody who was there, when David was finally chosen, they must have thought, wow, they, they didn't choose the best and finest of the sons of Jesse. No, they chose the little squirt at the end, number eight. There must be something about him that's completely different to the others. What is it? What is it? What's the qualities here that they chose David? Because it wasn't their ability. It wasn't their height or their muscular body or their good looks. God chose David for a completely different reason. And it's the same reason, it's the same reason today that God's already chosen you and me. See, the good thing about living in the New Testament part of the Bible, living in that these days, is God doesn't, God, God's already chosen you because of a man called Jesus Christ. He's already Because Jesus Christ has already done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, and that is pay the penalty for our sin. Jesus Christ has done that. He's already chosen you. The fact is, you've got to make a decision on whether you choose Him. 
That, that's the difference. But the truth is, He's already chosen you. Because he can see, he looks at the potential, when he sees you, he looks at the potential in your life. He sees the wonderful qualities that he could develop. And uh, as was said this morning, I think by pretty this morning, uh, I'm, I'm under a process. I'm a, I'm a work, I'm a thinking process. I'm working, God's working through my life, doing something. And you know what, he does that for all of us, but he sees you and he chooses you long ago. Uh, we just got to maybe choose him, haven't we? Draw near to him. So we see in this story, it highlights the fact that God chooses David over a whole bunch of other people. And there's some qualities about David that are very different. And in verse 6 and 7, we see that God looks at the heart and not the outward appearance. I was, uh, when, I was, uh, when I was just a young boy myself of about 6 or 7 years of age, I lived in a little town called Gympie. I actually thought it was the big city. It had about 3,000 people in it at the time. I thought it was a massive city. I'd moved from the country farming life as a five-year-old into the city, big, buzz, you know, busy metropolis of Gympie. And, I, and for a couple of months, me and my parents and my, my three sisters lived in my grandparents' house till we, find that we bought a house to buy. And uh, they, as a little six-year-old and seven-year-old, they were the perfect grandparents because they owned a shop, okay? And it was one of those shops that had everything from, you know, uh, from honey to hardware. You know, it just had everything. And there was no Woolworths, no Coles in those days. Who remembers those days? Uh, not many, righto. Um, you must be all pretty young. Um, and so when you had one of these type of shops, you, you kind of had it all. And, and there was a place in that shop that I, as a six-year-old, particularly enjoyed. It was the lolly counter. Um, you know, and my grandmother was, my, I thought grandmother was actually the god. <laughs> I, I found out later she wasn't, but you know, you know, I just, I just thought God was so good, and I thought my grandmother, wow, because she said to me every day after school, you can have, you can have your pick of lollies. Just a, used to be little white packets, and we put about five or six lollies in there, and I'd take those and I'd cherish them and eat them, and it wouldn't take too long to eat them, mind you. But that was a great every afternoon I, I, when I was coming home from school. I just was expectations were incredibly high. I was looking forward to it. So I'd stand in front of the lolly counter. You got the picture? And I'd look at all the lollies because there's a lots of different lollies. And, I'd, um, and, and there was one particular lolly that I wanted above every other lolly. And it didn't make the other lollies bad. It just made the lolly you want different, okay? And so I'd look at the snakes. Who remembers the long lolly snakes? You know, you could, they, they took longer to eat. So, you know, they were quite, they lasted a while. And then there was the, um, but that wasn't the one I was looking for. Then there was the redskins. Who knows what redskins are? <coughs> okay. Some precious people don't know what red, they, well, you could suck on those all day. <laughs> they were incredible. You know, they were just sticky, delicious, um, you know, two filling removers from your teeth, <coughs> as I found out. <laughs> as my wife says, don't have things like... My wife doesn't let me chew chewing gum. She says they loosen your fillings. Well, she's a dentist. She should know. Anyway, so I imagine that's what those redskins were like. They were incredible. And then, I, but it wasn't the redskin that I was after. And then there was the um, what was the other one? I must look at my notes. The jelly babies. Jelly babies. You could take a bunch of them and stick them in your mouth and demolish them in seconds. They were just so soft. They were just so nice. But it wasn't jelly babies. And then I look at the chocolate bullets with the licorice centers. Who liked them? And I just. Thank you, Tians. I see that hand right down the back. They were incredible. They were incredible. But it wasn't them that I ever were looking for. But the lolly I wanted 
to be honest, now in hindsight, as a six-year-old, I didn't think up this story. I thought of it now. But as a lolly, but I, the lolly I wanted was inconspicuous, was very plain looking, wasn't brightly coloured, was not large. It didn't have, it didn't last as long as other lollies. No chocolate coating. Um, they were even placed at the back of the lolly uh, counter uh, because they were the cheaper lollies. Uh, and all the brightly coloured Deera lollies, see my grandparents had marketing skills, all the Deera brightly coloured lollies were at the front, and these were often pushed to the back, you know, because they didn't cost as much. I think it was like you could buy two, two or three of these for a cent. I don't know if you'd remember those days. Um, so, uh, but the lolly I wanted had a flavour that was like no other, okay? And the lolly was the iconic milk bottle milk bottle now some of you are looking at me a little confused you don't know what a milk bottle is we actually well it's about this big it's pure white and looks like a little glass milk bottle that we used to have before they had cartons i know that's difficult to think about but that's what it used to be it's a milk bottle and so this was a distinct flavor it had it 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 didn't attract you to it. It was just a white little lolly, and it was, it was soft, and it was nice, and no chocolate. It was everything that I enjoyed. And, and you know what? It, and if you're really keen, you can go on Google and buy a kilo for nine, $9.75, okay? But um, that's the reality of the milk bottle. It, just, it was inconspicuous. It didn't have the same as the other lollies. It was put to the back. And, I, and, I, and the, the point is exactly what I think is happening, because God... God sees with truth, and what God sees is not the outside, but the internal beauty. What He sees is He doesn't see the outward frame, He sees the internal flavor. And when He looks at your life, He sees what's the important things of your life, just like He looked at David, because it wasn't the outward frame that attracted Him to David, it was the internal flavor. In other words, the qualities of His own heart and life that attracted Him. And that's exactly what God says is, is so important. But when you start to think about it, the eternal, external beauty is continually rammed and pushed and forced upon us. We're force-fed through media outlets all the time about how we should look, how we should, you know, our frame and, and how, whether it's muscular or beautiful or thin or whatever, you know, whatever it may be that gets pushed. That's continually. But who knows that the external beauty is temporary? <laughs> even brawn and even, you know, muscles or brains or smarts or talents will fade. But eternal beauty can actually, the truth is, can get stronger and stronger for the entirety of your life. Your last breath, you can be, you can have eternal qualities that are far better than when you were younger. With your last breath, you could pass away with internal qualities. But your outward frame, <laughs> it's not going to last, is it? Can I just let you into a secret? We're getting older. <laughs> it's okay, you're allowed to. We don't like to think about that, do we? Oh, to be honest, it's not the most pleasant thought we're going to pass from this life. But you know, that's a reality. So there's got to be something far and more important than just this outer frame, hasn't there? There's got to be... It's it's. It's not just the outer frame, it's the internal flavor. And we don't taste like milk bottle, but the point is, is that God chooses people and He looks at you and He says, hey, so much more for you in here. And yet we give so much attention sometimes to what, uh, we're so concerned about what's out here. Here's what God is saying in this passage. This is my paraphrased thought. 
If the world was blind, how many people would you impress? You have to think about that one. It's okay. If the world was blind, how many people would you impress? If they couldn't see you out of frame, some of you might say, I'd impress people a lot better, actually. <laughs> I'm not saying anything. Or some of you might say, well, maybe I wouldn't impress anybody. Because the reality is, if people couldn't see you, would they start to see some of those inequalities? Would they start to hear and listen to some of the wisdom or the, or the sincerity or the honesty or, or, or some of the, the, the kindness or the patience they hear in what you say, how you speak? Because they're the qualities that God wants to impart. So, see, because this verse makes the point that God sees, but in a way is blind to the external, but always sees the internal. It's not that God doesn't care about your outward frame. Of course, He cares about you if, you, if something breaks or your broken finger or something hurts or sprains something. Of course, He cares. But God doesn't look at the things the way we look at things. We get so consumed with the outer frame sometimes. And it distracts us from the true beauty that God wants to de- you need to develop or God wants to develop in your life. See, verse 11 Samuel asked Jesse at last, after going through seven sons, he says, are these all the sons you have? And, Sa- and Jesse has to say, well, they're still the youngest. He's tending the sheep. And Samuel said, send for him. Do you know the word youngest means the smallest? See, the English translators sometimes just put it in nice words. He's the youngest. Do you know what it actually means? It means the smallest or the runt. The runt. The person who is most unlikely to succeed in life. Unfortunately, that's how they saw David. That's how his family saw David. And I was just contemplating the reality that often we see God uses the reversal of the world's values when, when he looks at people. You know, the world says the oldest son gets, the more inher- gets more inheritance. The pretty woman gets the man with the money. But the Lord doesn't always do that. He reverses it because his world values are not the same sometimes as the worldly values. His values, sorry, are not the same as the world values. And if you were to go through just the Bible and look at some of the characters that were chosen to do special things, you can see the Moseses of this life who had a stutter, who had inability to speak, and, and yet he used him to lead a nation of um, Jewish people out of slavery in Egypt through the desert and up to the brink of the promised land. Of course, Aaron, he, he chose Moses over Aaron, and yet Aaron was the one who could speak eloquently, and yet he didn't choose Aaron. He, he got Aaron to help Moses, but he chose Moses. What about if you, you know, what about planting or, or establishing the nation of Israel? Which woman would be the first woman to give birth to the first son or daughter that would start to establish this wonderful nation of Israel? You wouldn't think it would be a 90-year-old lady who everybody thought was past childbirth. No, it was. It was Sarah. And he chose Sarah over a young lady called Hagar. Now, she had a child, Abraham, as well. But it was Sarah who was the one who gave birth to Isaac Um, And then, of course, the nation of Israel. See, God chooses, God reverses the value system often, sometimes the value system of this world. God chooses the outsiders to bring about His purpose. Sometimes those who lack social ability or worldly approval, He says they're the ones. Because it's not about the outward frame, it's about the inward flavor. Our culture distorts the reality to look at beauty the beauty of the skin and not the context, or sorry, not the content of your character. 
continually pushes it, continually tries to bombard us, and it's force-fed. And, and, and we've got to make a conscious decision to say, no, that's not what I'm going to live by. I live by the world and its standards of what is valuable in this life. And so we've got to be careful. People desperately seek in this world to sometimes keep up the outward appearance in line with the models, whether it's the female model or the, the male muscular body, or to keep up and look the best and and body image is all consuming sometimes you know we've got to realize that you know while we need to look after our body we need to you know let's try and remain on this earth for as long as we can to be effective as we can to do God's will as long as we can but in the end who knows the body is not going to be here anymore and so we have to be careful you know uh, to be honest young men get bombarded by images of women and, and, and they go looking for the model type girlfriend and pass up the inner beauty of some amazing women. Or the older gentleman who's married finally gets a little tired of the old version of his wife. She's getting a bit older. Did he, little did he, he doesn't think about his own looks at the moment. And, and then he finds a younger version, gets distracted with a young lady and ends up with a, you know, trades in the old for the new. What a terrible world we can live in sometimes, hey? And it's all about, I'm not saying we're necessarily doing that, I'm just saying that's what the world's value is. And it's all about the outward frame, not the, not the inner flavor of our hearts and the real beauty. So, and in today, the truth is we don't have a shortage of intelligent people. We don't have a shortage of creative people. We've got plenty of smarts and plenty of creative things. The world is oozing with intelligent, creative people. But what we have a shortage of is we have a shortage of people with a lack of understanding of what real beauty is. I'm not just talking about females. I'm talking about both male and female and using the word beauty as a generic term across both sexes in that, you know, what is the real qualities of what's important? Are you becoming more beautiful? Are you becoming more flavorsome? See, I mean, are you less, what I mean is, are you less prone to selfishness? Are you less prone to self-pity? Have you realized that vanity is dressing up the external and not the internal beauty? Are you less sensitive about criticism than you were last year? And do you know how to truly love and be loved? All, the, all very important questions got to stop myself and ask myself those questions sometimes sometimes we don't stop in life we just do life at 100 miles an hour never pause to reflect how am i going how am i going am i is is the qualities inside my being getting better or are they just kind of slipping and getting worse um what if one day the outer self and the physical self were turned inside out what would that, how would that impact our, our looks and our confidence? And, and if we were, let's just, let's just dream for a moment. This will never happen, but for a second, if we were to develop a visible scar on our face for every negative thought we had, would we continue to have negative thoughts? <laughs> Are you there? Are you all right? Are you breathing? If we, would, if we would lose lumps of hair, gentlemen, every time we were slandering or mean or upset with someone, would, would it stop us? I'm not saying anybody bald this morning. We've got to <laughs> but if, if every time we held unforgiveness in our heart, we added a few pounds of weight to our body, would we still do it? If the inside and the outside 
were, were swapped over. It's a thought, isn't it? Because the truth is, God's very gracious. He doesn't let us see each other's hearts. Only He knows the heart of each of us. And He knows the, the, the beauty of our inner beauty. And He knows sometimes the ugliness of our hearts as well. He knows the ugliness of my heart and the beauty of my heart. And I'm glad and I praise God for that because it'll be pretty shameful, wouldn't it? Sometimes to show all the ugliness to each other on the outside of our bodies. But God says, you know, come on. It's not the outward appearance that I'm majoring on. It's the inward, inward beauty. It's not the outward frame. It's the inner, what? Flavor. You're not a milk bottle, but you know, you get the analogy. Someone once said this, you can take no credit for beauty at 16. But if you're beautiful at 60, then it's your own soul's doing. Think about that one. You can make, so what it's saying is at 16, generally, you know, fresh skin, looking well, you know, healthy generally. But at 60, yeah, you're not looking so good. Wrinkles, <laughs> it's all happening. It's all falling south. And, and you know, the reality is if, you, if, you, if people come up to you and say you're beautiful at 60, really maybe what they're, they're, they're referring to is what's happening inside you. It's because you've allowed something to develop within you that made you look beautiful. See, so here's the question. What's the source of true beauty? Verse 13 of this scripture, of this passage says, The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. For Samuel, that was a literal pouring out of this oil on David's head. But for God, it was a, there was a spiritual encounter. There was a spiritual outpouring of God's presence or the Holy Spirit on David. Uh, literally on David. It was a f um, so there was a physical demonstration of a spiritual um, equivalent. And, it, and the Spirit of God came upon David, and David then would have the ability and the help and the hope to reign and rule within a beauty, as the king should. Because there was a lot of kings who existed in those days who lived for themselves, to lift themselves higher. If you look at David's reign, he was not about lifting himself high. It was always about lifting God high. It was always about lifting the needy up. Uh, David wasn't perfect by any means. But there was something different about David's reign. Um, you know, usually the kings of the day were the people that, that, uh, that were more tyrants over their people than helpers. But David never was like that. Usually the kings of the days, if you read the history of the kings and the pharaohs, Man, they'd kill their own family to remain on their throne themselves. They were jealously guarded their throne. David never did that. And we won't go into the whole story, but he never, he was a different king. He wasn't the king of the world and its values. He was the king of, of God's values. He was a different man. And, and God knew that David needed that anointing or the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life to do that. I've got to be honest with you, David's anointing that day was not saying that David was the only one with a good heart. I think all the sons had something good about them, all the brothers. But if, if that was because if you thought that, well, David was the perfect heart, you'd be disappointed because David did get it wrong. He, he failed in several big areas. He was involved in murder and adultery. It wasn't the best thing. But the heart of David is, was always to repent and be so soft to God when God said, hey, David, you've got to stop that. And David said, I, I, I surrender. Unlike Saul, if you notice, that's why Saul was lost his kingdom is because of his, his arrogance and pride. So David was, a, he was anointed with a special 
anointing because God could see the heart of the man. And you know what? We need God's presence. We need the Holy Spirit in our lives because the more time we give to Him or the more time we spend with Him, the more we become like Him. And the fruit of the Holy Spirit isn't nasty. It's all incredible, beautiful. It's love and joy and peace and goodness, self-control, meekness and, and patience. It's all those wonderful qualities that really make a beautiful person on the inside. And that's what God asks of us. He asks us to draw near to Him. Why? Not just so we can, you know, it'll be just a nice day for us. No, that we can have the qualities. And I tell you what, when those qualities in my life, my marriage goes better, my family goes better, my workplace goes better, relationships go better, life just goes better when you have the quality in the beauty that God's talking about right here. Just life goes better. You know, in this whole story, as we look at this whole story, it points uh, to someone else. David's life is always an illustration of someone else's life. Because we, we can see it here clearly. David points to another person, another child who was born in Bethlehem. Several hundred years later, but he was born in Bethlehem. Another person who had been anointed, when he was anointed, was hunted by, not by Saul, because David was hunted by Saul, he wasn't hunted by Saul, he was hunted by Satan himself. Uh, he, he was, he was, David was pointing to the one who on the cross just wasn't forgotten by his father, but forsaken by his father. And it says here in Scripture, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus knew that God was for his father forsake him. And you ask, why did he do that? Well, here's the true beauty. Because Jesus Christ took the sins of the world on his, on his own life. And when God saw him with all our sin on his life, he had to turn away and forsake him because he couldn't stand to look at the sin. But Jesus took it. Do you know, the interesting thing is, it says that Jesus emptied himself of his beauty and became a servant. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. He emptied himself of what he was and became a servant. It says in Isaiah that when he was beaten before he was placed on the cross, he was beaten like no other man. They didn't recognize him. He was marred. He was just pulp and blood and flesh. And yet he lost his beauty so that we could lose our ugliness. He lost his beauty on the cross. He bore the sin of the world to take away the ugliness of sin that was in my life when we come and repent. And I love this. I love this. So that we could become beauty that really matters. Beauty in the eyes of God. Jesus Christ came so that we might have hope and a future. He took our ugliness. And I've got plenty of ugliness to go around. And I'm just glad I've got a God that said, you know what, I've got a plan for your life. I choose you. And I choose you because I've got a plan through Jesus Christ to take the ugliness of my sin. One, there's a verse in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. This is what the people of, the, of Jesus' day thought of, of this. Jesus demands, uh, sorry, the Jews demanded signs. The Pharisees and the Sadducees all wanted, they wanted miracles. Show us Jesus your miracles. Show us the outward signs. The Greeks look for wisdom, it says. The Greeks just wanted, they just wanted information. They always were discussing the latest and greatest theology, the Greeks. But this is what, Peter, uh, this is what the writer of Corinthians says. The Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. And this is what it's saying. In all the things, this world, isn't it the same in this world? The world looks for outward frame. They look for certain things. Now, miracles are good and, you know, wisdom isn't brilliant. That's brilliant. But those things don't hold, they're not going to be... Um, 
what we really need to look at. We need to look at what's happening on the inside. Jesus Christ crucified. When he took the ugliness of the world, allowed it to be on himself so that we could look beautiful, that we could receive his forgiveness and mercy and, and be look see being seen as beautiful before God. And you know when we have when we embrace that, we can destroy the need to outwardly always be adoring the outward frame. Now there's nothing wrong with looking nice or you know trying to maintain your body or anything or eating proper food. Let's live on this world and this earth as long as we can. But that's not what makes you who you are. It's what's in here that really makes you who you are. It's not, I'll say it again, it's not the outward frame, it's the inward flavor. It's not the outward frame, it's the inward flavor. See, my title today of this message was, that, was this, the David that God sees. I come back to verse one, what we started with. What does God see? God doesn't see David's outward frame, he sees his inner frame flavor he sees the qualities of his life and he says you know what i can use that i can do something with that life that young 15 or whatever age he was i can do something and he he can become a king but i'm going to take another 15 years to develop his character but we're going to we're going to work with that because he's soft you know the great one of the greatest qualities in your life i've discovered in all the good qualities that we need patience and kindness and sincerity you know one of the greatest qualities is this softness and sincerity before our god Arrogance is a destructive power, I tell you. But just softness and surrender to Him always. So that when God comes along, when I blow it and fail and sin, and God comes along, He puts His finger on my life, I say, the ability to be able to say, God, you're right. And you surrender that. And you hand it over and you give it over. That's, that's the greatest quality. You know what Satan would love you to continue to do? Be arrogant and proud. Because it never allows you to open your heart to the things that God wants for your life. And this is the quality God sees. The David that God sees is a heart that was soft and malleable in his hands. Do you know in Genesis it just says this, that God created us in his own image? I was thinking about that word image. We get bombarded with images every day of our life. You go on Facebook, you see the image of certain, wow, they look beautiful, they look muscular. You go on Instagram, you get whatever. You go on television. Even the, the, the simplest of movies can always be force-feeding you the values of the world of this is how you should look. This is how you... And yet, God didn't make us in the image of the frame. He made us in the image of His heart. And so that's what we need to see. With the image that we're really made for was to have the image of God within us, not on the outside. We're all different shapes and sizes. Praise God, we're not all the same. But you know, your shape and size is just as good as anybody else's shape and size. Your color is just as good as anybody else's color. Amen? Your tribe is just as good as any. We're equal before our Heavenly Father. And the world rages because they're so concerned about the outward frame and not the inward flavor. They rage against each other. We're bombarded with images. May you, be, may you see the image that God made you, talking about image. Only the power of God's Holy Spirit can break the power of the values of this world over our life, I tell you. 
and, and, and start to help us. Because I need God. <laughs> My human nature screams at me all the time. Oh, think this way. Do this. Get concerned about this. You know, be concerned about what people, this, this, this. No, no, no. Holy Spirit says, you know, would you just settle down, rest, and let love and joy and peace settle up over your heart. Patience, kindness. Let the beauty of the image of God really shine out. Can we stand today as we close? I just want to pray for you today. Father, I thank you today for every person in the hearing of not just my voice, but your Holy Spirit. You're here at this place. Father, may we be a people that would realize that, Lord, we can come to you. We can seek your mercy and forgiveness. And you, and as we ask for forgiveness, you receive us. You take the ugliness of our sin and replace it with the beauty of your goodness. And Jesus, you've done that on a cross. And I'm glad that you didn't stay on the cross. You rose again victorious, just like we can in life. And that means committing our lives to your Lord Jesus. If there's people today that need to do that, help them to do that. Father, for everyone today, I pray that you'd help us to walk, not in so gazing upon the frame of people that it consumes us, but Lord, looking upon the flavor of our own hearts and letting you change that so that it tastes palatable, first of all to you, to give glory to you and then to others. God, help us, Father. We need your strength because we're, we're human. We're, the flesh wants to scream what we should do. Holy Spirit, help us to hear you above that. Today, tomorrow, at work, with our family, when we, wherever we're going to go this week, we ask. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And anybody agree this morning? Can I just get a amen? Amen. Come on. Which one last song to worship today? Lord, bless you. His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord, turn with His face toward you and Shine upon you and be gracious to you.